Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Robcast. And I am thrilled to have with me Corey Townsend. And uh, Corey, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's so uh, it's so great. I met Corey at Stratton Glaze's apartment. It was uh, yeah. like a year ago. And Corey told me that he had served as a soldier in Iraq in Fallujah. And we just had like a really brief conversation. And I remember thinking at the time, if I ever got a podcast, <laughs> I would interview that guy just on the few minutes we had to talk. Um, because as a former soldier and the thing, the issues that you were exploring, I was like so many, I, I need to learn from him. And uh, so all my Robcast friends, um, prepare yourself because we're going to go into some really interesting places. And I'm so excited because I've only heard little glimpses of Corey's story. So how did you uh, end up a soldier? Maybe we should just start there. Yeah. Um, in high school, uh, I mean, I guess it, it starts even way before then. Uh, I grew up in a family that was uh, sort of a broken home um, with parents that were not always around, um, partly because of the divorce, partly because of other things. But uh, so we uh, were not wealthy by any means. Um, we were actually struggling really hard. Um, I have a mother who worked her, her ass off to provide for my brother and sister and I, and um, she did a great job. Um, but it's sort of like a lot of people that go into the military. Um, I was from very humble beginnings, mm -hmm. um, struggling in poverty. And uh, so I worked full time starting uh, when I was 16. I had a full time job in high school. Um, hated my job as I was graduating high school. And one you day. You worked full time while in high school? Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Um, yeah, I was going to school from like seven in the morning till three in the afternoon and working 3.30 to midnight every day. What kind of and job was it? I was loading semi trucks in a in a heating and ventilation like production warehouse. Were yeah, you always so was, tired. I was always exhausted. I was. I mean, I started drinking black coffee when I was sixteen, and uh, really? just to stay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm still hooked, and I'll never give it up. So I'll just. So was that unusual? Yeah, there were a, a lot of kids um, working. There weren't a lot of kids working full time, but there were a lot of kids working. And the the dropout rate uh, in my high school was somewhere near fifty percent. And a lot of kids were dropping out to go work so they could have money for their family. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for kids to have jobs. Um, full time jobs was fairly unusual. Um, and as as that sort of wore on, and I finished high school, um, I realized that I hated my job working in a warehouse, being dirty and tired all the time. Um, wasn't for me. So uh, one day I'd, I uh, had a friend who was joining the Marines and he uh, suggested that I talk to a recruiter and two days later I signed the paperwork. Uh, it and was, was it a hard sell? Was it like, how did they pitch it? I mean, so I walked into the recruiting office and they were like, I mean, I was this tiny scrawny kid and I still am. and and. <laughs> Right, so I'm walking into the Marines recruiting station and there's all these big burly dudes around and uh, they just sort of looked at me like, I, I think you're in the wrong place. And, uh, and so they, they uh, talked to me for a minute like, hey, what's your name? Uh, and my friend had told them um, that he was gonna bring me in because you get a promotion if you bring friends in and get them to sign up. Um, so that's a whole nother issue, but uh, so they were, they talked to me for a little bit, just asked me like what I thought about the military, told me I could travel the world, see see the world, have get a good paycheck, do all these things, right? They they sold me on the economic advantage uh, of joining the military and being able to see the world and travel, right? The things that everybody wants to do, have enough money to live comfortably, see the world, travel. Um, and And yeah, I bought into it and I said, yeah, let's do it. So I signed up. And uh, two days later, it was sort of like um, I was 100% in. Like, I thought I'd never made a better decision in my life. And before I even, I didn't even talk to my parents, didn't consult them, nothing. And so I signed up and I called my mom. I thought my mom was going to be pissed. And I thought my dad was going to be really excited because my dad's dad, my grandpa, um, was in World War II. And I mean, that's always been a point of pride in my family. Um, he, yeah, he did a lot of really heroic things in World War II. And, uh, and so um, I thought my mom was going to flip and my dad was going to uh, 
was going to be proud of me. And, and they were. They were both proud of me. But my mom flipped. She was like, what the hell are you thinking? Don't you know we're at war? I mean, it's 2004, right? So oh, it's a like, year into the yeah. war in Iraq. Yeah. So it's sort of at the peak of violence in Iraq when things are really starting to get bad. And, uh, and my dad was, uh, he was not real thrilled about it. He was like, what, why are you doing this? What are you thinking? Um, have you thought this through? And obviously I hadn't. Um, I mean, I took two days to think about it. Um, a decision that obviously forever changes your life, but, uh, could also cost you your life and you have no idea what you're signing up for. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. Um, and over the course of those two days, I thought like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it hundred percent. I want to do it. I want to be in on this. Uh, so not only did I join the Marines, I, I thought, well, might as well join the infantry too. And so you have to take this test when you join the military. Um, and it basically tests like how smart you are and certain scores allow you to do different jobs. And so I scored like in the 99th percentile on this test. And so they said, you can do any job in the military you want. Did you what know you, you were smart in high school? No, not really. I mean, I didn't. You were loading trucks. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was loading trucks, and I didn't try hard. So then and I you slept do this classes. military test, and you have like all this <laughs> yeah. intelligence or ability or skill uh, or something. Well, I mean, it's it's not a test that uh, that really weeds out um, <laughs> highly yeah, intelligent yeah. and uh, and people who who have not put as much time into studying. Um, it's it's much more focused on like just basic problem solving and sort yeah. of mechanical uh, mechanical stuff. Which, so what did you choose to do then? So I, I joined the infantry because why else would you join the Marines, I guess? And what's that mean? What, so, so the infantry is like, I mean, I could have been a truck driver. I could have been a mechanic. I could have been an airplane mechanic. I could have done anything I wanted. Intelligence analysis, which I ended up doing later. Um, but... Uh, I mean, it, but for infantry Marines, like, you go sleep on the ground in the middle of the combat zone and you shoot at people. That's your whole job is to go kill people. And you knew that when you signed up for it. Yeah. So so you go to basic training, you go to camp, you... Right, yeah. So, like, six months later, I went to, to basic training in San Diego, um, went through all that, and as soon as I... So, I was living in Denver. I grew up in Denver or just outside of Denver. And um, I get on an airplane and I land in San Diego and I see tons of uh, Marine recruits that are all going to boot camp and getting off airplanes and walking through the airport. And they sort of shuffle you into the USO in the airport. And as soon as I walked into the USO, I went, oh, damn, I made a mistake. This, I, sh I probably shouldn't have done this. And I was, I was, I was frightened. And I immediately regretted like the last six months of like my excitement and preparation and everything that I'd thought I, I was now rethinking, like, what did I get myself into? Like, what was it specifically that, that brought this on? Yeah. Good question. I'm not sure. I think the uh, reality, yeah, of I think it, the, the reality like, of it happening? is, yeah, the reality of it that, huh. that I signed up for something that I can't get out of, um, and that I don't know what means or what's going to happen to me. And mm. I mean, you know, life is like that in a lot of ways. You can't predict the future and you never know what, what's in store down, down the road. But um, I mean, we're at war in two countries at that time. So it was like, and I joined the infantry of all things in the Marines where like these are the people going to fight the war more than anybody else. And so I think as I, as I landed and was seeing this stuff, it kind of hit me like, oh yeah, that's a thing I'm doing. I'm going to Iraq. Um, that's happening. And the, the magnitude of the situation and the gravity of it finally struck me rather than it being like, oh, I'm going to serve my country in some distant land um, or the romanticized notions of military service. Uh, they all faded and it became very tangible because my body was now somewhere that, um, that meant I no longer had control over myself. From that point on, like I didn't have the ability to decide when I ate, when I slept, when I went to the bathroom, what I did at any given time, whatever I was told to do, I had to do it, period, end of story. Autonomy was gone. And so that was a frightening, frightening scenario, right? They're shuttling us into the, the USO, screaming at us, telling us to sit here 
don't look look forward and don't look side to side don't look backwards eyes only on the front of the back of the head in front of you don't move don't move and they're screaming at you and screaming and how many years are you committed for four so and four years like i mean when you've just gotten out of high school like high school seemed like an, an eternity right when you're in the middle of it um and so now to think like well i've got that long again doing this which is so much worse what in the world like it, it was nuts so um yeah and and i think another part was that i was like a hundred and i'm i'm six foot and i was like 124 pounds soaking wet i was a tiny little kid um like i had to get an exemption because i didn't technically weigh enough to join the military and uh yeah wow and um and so you know i'm sitting there and there's all these incredibly uh strong cut up beefy dudes sitting around me and i'm thinking like how in the world am i ever going to survive in this like incredibly physically demanding environment um that's going to take everything that they have and i'm nowhere near their size like how am i going to do this it was just incredibly intimidating um, and it's designed to be intimidating, right? You're designed to be, it's designed to be intimidated so that you'll do whatever you're told uh, and, and you, you lose your ability intentionally um, to make decisions for yourself. Uh, so the psychology of it is working on you from before you ever set foot on foreign soil. Yeah. Yeah. The whole system is designed for you to do what you're told in the moment immediately without any questions done. Right? Yeah. And and this is one of the things that's really good about the military, right? They're really good about training people to be brave, uh, training people to be courageous. They're really good at training people to, um, to, to live in a certain way. Um, those are things that they do very, very well. How they do them might not be the best way. Um, it's very coercive and oftentimes very violent, um, but they have a system in place that really shapes the person uh, to do exactly what they want them to do. And I think there's things that we can learn there, but there's also downsides to that um, because one of the things that they're training people to do is, well, the primary thing that they're training people to do in Marine boot camp, at least, is to kill people. And so your whole existence for three months is designed to break down your psychology um, or your your own autonomous decision making in such a way that uh, after that period you'll do whatever you're told and in the instant when a situation arises you're going to kill somebody that's not something that people can turn off either that's why we're seeing veterans with ptsd come back and not being able to adjust well to civilian life because you were taught how to kill people. And then to unlearn that. To unlearn that is incredibly difficult. To unlearn and to recognize the sort of daily patterns of thought and action that have been ingrained in you, that train you to be violent, that train you to respond with anger, that train you to respond in, in uh, confrontational situations um, by settling conflict with violence, that's just, part of who you've become as you're trained that way, right? You're, you're yeah. turned into the type of person, um, your character is melded in such a way that you're responding to stimuli and to situations instinctively. And that instinctive training is to one, do whatever you're told by whoever's in charge of you, and two, to, to neutralize any sort of threat. Oh man, okay, so, you're in San Diego, and then they sh they fly you to Iraq. Yeah, I mean there was well, I mean there was a there was some time in between. Um, so that was uh, let's see, I was oh, in four oh five. That was there. yeah, that was like uh, the end of oh four, and then um, the summer of oh five, uh, we went to Iraq the first time. And um, in between there, there was a lot more training and sort of um, being assigned to a particular unit and, and learning how to work in that unit. But at um, some point you're in a plane and right. the plane is landing at an airport in Iraq. Yeah. So, and what's hap What are you thinking as you land in Iraq? Um, I was actually asleep for, for it the first time. 
because I took a bunch of, uh, well, not a bunch, but I took um, some sleeping pills because uh, it's a long flight. So um, when I woke up, uh, it was like we were in Kuwait. And so we flew into Kuwait, and I woke up in Kuwait, and then um, we stayed a couple days in Kuwait, and then we um, took another plane to Iraq. And so I guess I was awake when, uh, when we landed in Iraq. And as we're descending, it was sort of like, okay, we're here. Um, and you get out of the plane and at that point, uh, you spend like one or two days, um, at a large base before we went to Fallujah. So before we went into the city, um, we spent a couple days just sort of acclimating and getting used to the conditions, waiting for trucks to show up. Um, it's a logistical nightmare to try and transport a thousand Marines into, you know, Fallujah. So, um, and it takes a couple weeks generally, um, so during that time, it was sort of like, just lay around, sit around, hang out. And over the course of two weeks or so, I think it became more and more real as we could hear mortars going off in the, in the distance. Um, we, we would see glimpses of like Apaches taking off and things like that. It became real, like, okay, yeah, we're, we're in a war zone now. Like we could die as soon as we, as soon as we um, leave this, this area. And, uh, and so, yeah, after a couple days or a week there or something like that, we ended up going to our base in Iraq or in Fallujah, excuse me. And so the first thing we did is we were sort of being shown around the area we were responsible for. And, um, we were being shown around and, and at the time, uh, roadside bombs, IEDs were the big threat. Uh, they were the bigger threat than anything. And so our primary job was to like guard this one road that uh, trucks would drive up and down with supplies. And um, our whole job was to make sure that nobody put IEDs on there. Obviously, you can't be everywhere at once. And so there were IEDs on it every single day. And so like IED, IEDs are going off every day. And there's this one major road through our area and so we're being shown around. Uh, this guy's pointing out this road to us, and he's saying, "Oh yeah, you don't want to walk on this road. Like if you're not in an in a an, uh, Humvee that's totally armored up, like just stay away." And so I was the point man of my squad, which means like I was in charge of navigating us. And so I'm in this totally foreign area that I've never been in before. I've only seen pictures of on maps and pictures of, um, you know, on computer screens. And so. I'm guiding our patrol and I'm walking around and I asked the guy who knows where we are. I said, Hey, where are we right now? And he said, we're on the road. You don't want to walk on. I think that is the point where I was like, Oh damn, I could, I could die right now. I can't see anything. It's the middle of the night. It was dark. And was, you're 19. Yeah, yeah. 19. Yeah. I'm 19. Um, and I'm responsible for 12 other people behind me. Um, I mean, there's obviously people that are in charge of them too, but I'm guiding them. And here I am walking them down a road that's filled with bombs. And that's your introduction to war. To yeah. To Iraq. Yeah. And yeah. then you sort of set, I don't think settle in is the right way to describe it. You, you get used to things, I guess. Um, you learn your way around and then, um, after a while you, uh, yeah, you just know where things are and you know where to go and where not to go and how to do things and how not to do things. Um, and you never really quite get settled because as soon as you start to feel comfortable, like you get hit with a roadside bomb or somebody shoots at you or a mortar lands, you know, 10 feet away. And so you never quite get comfortable um, and you don't want to get comfortable because if you get too comfortable, like you're just not, you're going to stop paying attention and yeah. you're going to get somebody killed. So being shot at someone trying to kill you becomes a natural part of every day. Yeah. It, yeah. We could have set our watches by um, people shooting at us every, every day in the afternoon, like two or three o'clock, somebody would take a sniper shot at us. And you just knew it was coming. Yeah. And so you stood there on the guard post anyways and just waited for it to happen. Really? You can do anything else. I mean, you can't just like say, well, I guess we won't guard, um, we won't guard this base today, right? All you got to do, like the only thing you can do is stand there and hope that you see them before they see you. And you can't. They're, I mean, you can't always do that. And so it was just, it was normal. 
So what's happening to your perspective? Are you, I'm America, we're going to red, white, and blue, these colors go <laughs> Like, are you, are you, hey, wait, this, when I watch an NFL game and they have those really stirring army commercials, this isn't like the commercial. Like, what's yeah. happening, what's happening to you and your fellow soldiers? Yeah, good question. Um, there was a lot happening. For most of the people I was with, at least, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, for most of the people I was with and for myself, um, we weren't terribly patriotic folks to begin with. I mean, we all loved America and we thought America was the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and, and all of, you know, all of the propaganda that's fed to us, we all bought into it. Um, but realistically, like we were fighting a war because, um, we were told to go fight it and we were just trying to stay alive and trying to keep the people around us alive. Like, I don't think anybody had any sort of grand illusions that we could win. It just wasn't a winnable war, right? Like, you're fighting people you don't know. Um, you can't you see. You can't see, right? You don't know who they are. You can't see them. Um, nobody has any idea who they are. And so, like, I don't think anybody was under the illusion that uh, that somehow we could just kill enough terrorists and, and terrorism would stop. So soldiers weren't like, like chest bumping, going freedom. America's the great. No, it was like. I mean, stay ironically, alive. yeah. But, uh, but I mean, yeah. It was it was stay alive and keep keep the the guy to the right and to the left of you alive. Like, don't let your friends go home in a box. Becomes very 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 simple. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. And so this first your first tour lasts how long? Uh, the first, first one was, uh, seven months. And are you shooting people? Uh, well, let's go back to transitions, right? Um, what's happening to me and um, all of that. Um, so I went from like thinking what we were doing in Iraq was probably a good thing that we were liberating people and giving them freedom and capitalism and all of that crap. Um, Everything people running for president say. Yeah. <laughs> I was a good Republican, Rob. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, um, yeah, so here I am uh, in the middle of Iraq, and I'm starting to wonder, like, do these people feel free at all? Like, is there any freedom here? Because nobody can move around the city. They have to go through our checkpoints, and we have the guns. And so where we say you go, you go. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. Um, wow. And so I'm, I'm starting to question like all of these things, right? And um, and it hadn't we hadn't been in Iraq that long, maybe yeah, two we or three weeks. Three, so oh, okay. Well, personally, you, personally I hadn't been. It. Yeah, and and we hadn't been there that long either, um, as a country. Um, but yeah, I, I'd been there two or three weeks, and um, I'm starting to question whether or not what we're doing is in the best interest of the Iraqi people. And, uh, and so one day, uh, I'm standing a guard post at a vehicle checkpoint that's, uh, that goes over, um, a dam on the Euphrates river and I'm switching posts. It's the end of my eight hour long post that I'm standing there checking cars and checking IDs and making sure nobody's trying to sneak bombs or guns into the city. And, uh, and I, somebody comes and we switch out and he takes over and I grab a bag of trash and I start to walk, walk it to where we burned our trash because that's what you do with trash. You light it on fire. Um, take that mother nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm walking to where we burn our trash and, uh, what seemed instantaneous to me, the sound of a gunshot and a plume of dust from the wall right next to me sort of comes in front of my face. And a bullet um, had hit the wall right in front of me and missed me by like maybe six inches tops. And so instinctively, right, I, I get down, get behind cover, and uh, after a couple seconds, I see somebody with uh, an AK-47 and I shoot at him. And I missed. And um, these two guys end up getting in a boat and cruising down the Euphrates River and everybody, nobody got hurt that day. Um, right. None of us got hurt. None of, none of the, uh, people shooting at us got hurt. 
And uh, so I go back into the sort of like birthing area where all the Marines slept and I lay down and it's um, starting to, it's about nighttime now, starting to get dark. Um, And I lay down, I'm exhausted. I've been up for probably 16 hours and I lay down and, uh, and at this time I'm a Christian, right? And so I start praying like, God, make my aim better next time. And, and I start praying that prayer and I start thinking like, hmm, is that really loving my enemies? Like asking God to make my aim better? Is that really going to make, uh, make me more Christian or more Jesus-like or whatever you want to say about that? And uh, is, that really, is that making me a better person? Is that making me... Um, conform to sort of what the Bible is calling us to in loving our enemies. And so for the next couple of weeks, I thought a lot about that. And uh, over the course of three or four more months, I started reading every book I could get my hands on about Christianity and violence from every different perspective that I could get my hands on. How are on. you getting these books in Iraq? So I had, I had this friend who was in seminary, and, uh, and I had him, I just, I wrote him an email one day. We had email. Um, very sparsely, not often. Um, it was like every, you know, maybe every month we could check our email and we had like 20 minutes. So I, so I write this guy an email and I tell him sort of just very briefly, like what's going on. Um, and I said, like, I'm starting to wonder about this whole Iraq thing and this whole military thing and this whole violence thing is, can, can this be a Christian thing? I was like, what do you think? I don't really get to check my email, but if you want to write me letters, uh, here's the address. So then I get a big box of books and he sent me, he sent me this box of books. Um, and a lot of those books I still have on my shelf. And one of them, interestingly, was one of my favorite to read. And so I would carry it around in my, in my pack because we'd go out for three or four days at a time. And the guy that wrote the book is one of the most staunchly nonviolent pacifist Christian thinkers around his whole career is built on it and he's incredibly well known and respected for it. And I was carrying his book around reading it in the middle of Iraq fighting a war. Who, who was it? Stanley Hauerwas. Hauerwas? Okay. Hauerwas. So I was wondering if you'd read Yoder. Oh yeah. Yoder was in the box. Yoder was in the box? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I was going to say he for sure sent you some, uh, is it John Yoder? Yeah. John Howard Yoder. Um, yeah. So I read, I read tons of stuff from, just keep going. I read tons of stuff uh, from all different perspectives. And um, so I was also talking to uh, like the chaplain, right? There's a chaplain. And whenever I could, I was talking to the chaplain saying like, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm reading. And the chaplain was, uh, he was a Lutheran chaplain, I think. And um, not that the Lutherans are bad. I love the Lutherans. Any Lutherans listening? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, so I'm talking to this chaplain and... Uh, and he basically says, like, well, yeah, but that's not, but that's not practical. We can't be nonviolent in real life. I mean, we can't not fight wars. And I'm sitting there like, well, maybe we could not. I mean, nobody's really given it a shot, so I don't know if we can't do it. And, I mean, maybe we can't. I don't know. Um, but that wasn't really the question I was asking. I was asking whether or not that was an okay thing to do as a, as a religious person, as a Christian person. Does this square with the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham? Does this square with the person of Jesus? And the answer I was coming up with was no, it doesn't. And so I'm talking to this chaplain, and finally he acknowledges that like, I hold, like I've come to a position that a lot of Christians agree with, that it's not some radical, crazy idea that right. Christians are supposed to be nonviolent. Right. That the the core of Jesus's message is nonviolence, right? And it's not some radical idea. And so he tells me, "Well, you can file for conscientious objector status." And so um, by this time, it's like the end of our deployment, and my plan is to just ride out like the last month and a half, and then get back to the states, file for conscientious objector status, and get out of the military. That didn't happen. Um, so I get back. And I start to like do all the work um, for filing conscientious objector status. 
and my chain of command finds out about it, right? You have to tell them. And they basically convinced me that uh, your application will be denied because they're not letting anybody out of the military right now. So I didn't file. So you never found out whether that was true or not? No. I, well, I know now that it wasn't true. Oh, I smelled that when you said that. I was like, right. oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I mean, there's constitutional uh, provisions yes, exactly. that, that allow for people to, um, on religious grounds, abstain from military service. I mean, the church I'm a part of, uh, most, most of the people in the church are much older than I am. Um, and a good number of them uh, were non, or, uh, conscientious objectors in Vietnam and World War II. And they did a whole host of other things instead. They still um, served their country, most of, most of these people, um, but in different ways that weren't military service. Um, and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, like, I mean, it's a whole tangent that we can go, we can go down that rabbit hole. Um, but uh, it is to say that, um, that yeah, it's, it's, it was illegal and unconstitutional, uh, what I was told. But I bought it because I was 20. Right. And I I've never read the Constitution at 20. I went to a failing high school that's since been bulldozed. So you're home in the States, you're a soldier, and then you go back. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I came back, um, and we were home for almost a year, and then we went back to Fallujah. To the and Fallujah got really dicey. Yeah, so on the second deployment, it was actually really calm. Like, nothing happened on the second deployment. Nothing. We just hung out. We walked around and asked people how much apples cost, stuff like that. And, uh, and, where were you, and then you came home and you were done? Yeah, then I, then I came home and, um, yeah, I came home uh, and there was like another six or eight months before I was done, but it wasn't too terribly long. And then and I And what was I got it like out. when you were totally out? Oh, I was I was so ready to get out that um that I was sort of like trying to adjust before I got out. Right. So I wasn't spending a whole lot of time with the people that I worked with or the people that were in the military. I was spending a lot of time with um other people. And uh and I was I was in Orange County then. And so I was surfing a lot and uh just really hanging out and live in the Southern California lifestyle. And it was great. Um, and then when I got out, um, I started college and um, yeah, it was good. I mean, I felt, did you ever see Billy Madison? Yeah. So you know when Billy Madison is uh, <laughs> sitting in class with a bunch of third graders and he's like 25? Yes. That's what I felt like in college. So I'm like 26 or so when I get out of the military, or I guess I and was you've been 25, shot at a lot. 20, 24. Yeah. And so when I started university, I was, I think I was 26 when I started university. I went to community college. And so that's, I mean, community college is fine. There's a lot of young kids there and that's cool, but there's a lot of people that are older continuing education, which is great. I still take community college classes when I can. Um, yeah. So I was like 27, been to war, seen people die, seen people lose limbs, seen friends like wounded beyond repair. Right. And, uh, have shot at people have been blown up in roadside bombs, and here I am sitting in a lecture about basic mathematics with 19-year-old kids who think they have the world by the tail, and I was like, you're such a baby. You don't know what's going on. And, uh, I mean, that's kind of a naive way to think about it in terms of, like, I'm so much better. I have so much more life experience. That, that's really unhealthy. Um, but, it, but it also sort of shows the flip side of that, which is that war makes you grow up real damn fast. Like you've got to become an adult real quick. Um, your adolescence is sort of cut short. Mm. What was it like for you when you would hear people talk about war, soldiers, uh, liberation, Iraq, Afghanistan, and you were out and you were just going to school and you'd hear you know, politicians or you'd hear it in the media? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for the first couple years, I tried not to hear any of that. I tried really hard. Um, I was in counseling for a long time. And, uh, and for the first couple years, 
my symptoms of PTSD were so bad that I would just avoid any interaction with sort of conversation of military or anything like that. As I sort of came out of that um, a little bit, I realized... How did your post-traumatic manifest itself? Oh, lots of ways. Um, So... Uh, loud noises, I still jump at them, right? That's pretty... To this day? Yeah, to this mm-hmm. day. That's pretty standard. Um, yeah, it's pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Um, I had really bad nightmares for a very long time. Um, still occasionally do. My wife will wake, wake me up every once in a while and say, like, are you okay? Um, and, uh, I mean, it's much less now. Very, very seldom now, I would say. Um, but, uh, yeah, nightmares. Um, going into a crowd was just not a thing that was going to happen. And so going to college was actually really hard because I'm in these big lecture, lecture halls, halls right? right? And um, and so I would sit in the very back corner closest to the door and have my, like, being able to see everyone in the room at the same time. And if I wasn't in a, in a space like that in the room, um, I would get so anxious that I would just leave. I would just leave in the middle of lecture and not come back that day and just go home and... Uh, yeah, just go home and, and breathe and breathe yeah, yeah. and yeah, and usually drink. <laughs> it, but your PTSD, I mean, from what I understand, is mild compared to what a lot of yeah people it is have come home with. It is. Um, a lot of that is because I got the help that I needed. Mm-hmm. It would have gotten worse if I didn't get help immediately. Um, and. As an aside, like, if we're going to send people to war, like, we damn well better be willing to take care of them after we break them. Um, So I took advantage of the health services and uh, mental health services, especially, that were available to me, but a lot of guys don't. Um, And a lot lot of people don't. A lot of men and women don't, not just guys. I I keep falling into guys because there was no women um, in my unit, which... You know, we're making progress, but we got a way to go, which, I don't know, maybe we should just disband the I was going to say. <laughs> so, um, so you're sort of recovering yeah. and healing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's, that's a forever thing, right? That's a thing that I have to live with forever. And so um, it was a big adjustment going from sort of hypervigilant all the time, incredibly anxious, unable to hold a conversation uh, not being able to be in a social setting, not being able to talk to somebody, not being able to take people seriously, being overly cynical about the world, right? All the symptoms of PTSD, nightmares, flashbacks, uh, jumping, right? Everything that you can think of that was like, um, that was all stuff that sort of had to be, I had to learn to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a thing that I still have to deal with. It's ju- it just comes up much less often now. Um, because I've dealt with that. And, um, and a lot of guys don't do that, or a lot of people don't do that with any kind of uh, PTSD, whether it be from war yeah. or not. A lot of people don't deal with that, and it really does affect people, um, and it seems to get worse over time. Um, so, uh, yeah, and that's, that's sort of, I don't know, uh, I'll get off my soapbox on... on um, getting treatment but if you know somebody help them yeah like help them get treatment so you're um now i mean what america something like six percent of the world's population and we have something like 43 percent of its weapons yeah we're a very very violent nation we are and we have built military bases all over the world right but there aren't other countries military bases in our country right like we're really really military violent and now you have like the presidential election and you have people we need to bolster the military we need right. to make it bigger we need to how do you hear all that yeah so now i hear it um much more as um just complete nonsense to be quite blunt i think it's crap i mean nobody like i don't know anybody that thinks like the bolsheviks are coming is just out of their gourd, right? Like, um, yeah, we have, we have the largest military in the world and we have enough weaponry to 
destroy the entire world multiple times multiple over. Multiple times over, correct. Um, so the idea that we need more of that somehow perpetuates this myth that the more weapons you have, the safer you are. And the reason that that myth is perpetuated is uh, it's, it's driven by um, the myth of redemptive violence. If somebody attacks us, uh, well, then we can just attack them stronger and uh, that'll we'll make it win. Right. And, and that'll end everything. Like, they won't get pissed off even more and, and try and attack again. No, that won't happen. They'll just give up because they realize we're the stronger bully on the playground. Right. And, um, and so we have to, in this myth of redemptive violence, we have to continue to stockpile weapons so that we can knock everybody else down multiple times, even if everybody were to attack us at the same time. We have to, we have, to have the amount of weaponry to knock everybody out. And it's all a lie. It's all nonsense. And it's it makes nonsense. the world more violent. It's, it makes the world more vi- Well, yeah, it does. Um, so, I mean, we can talk about nuclear weapons as one example, right? right. So we've somehow, like, deemed ourselves the, uh, the nuclear weapons police, right? So here we are trying to tell other countries, no, you can't have, uh, you can't have nuclear reactors for... Um, peaceful reasons. Whether or not they're peaceful reasons, that we can talk about, that's up for debate. But that we're trying to tell people or other countries who can and, who can have, and can't have, have it. Right. When we're the ones who have actually used nuclear weapons. Rob, you read my mind. You read the, my mind. The idea that the U.S. is working very hard to make sure certain people don't have nuclear weapons when we actually have more than anybody and we actually have used them on actual people who died yeah is one of the larger cases of hypocrisy in the history of the universe is that right. correct yeah absolutely. and the rest of the world all knows this yes and are all like you, people are ridiculous and we don't see it yeah unless you travel and then you're like all of a sudden like whoa right yeah you go you go to europe or something yes, or exactly. south america and and they're like what are you talking about you're, uh, america's not as great as you're saying i remember 2005 ish being in at dinner in buenos aires middle of the night there's argentina and a group of argentinian pastors confronting me this group of pastors <laughs> over like steak and wine i mean like what are you doing right do you understand what your country has become in the world and I just remember it set me that and sort of the alchemy between that and the war in Iraq just set me on a whole new way, 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 way. I am part of a system that is really, really, really destructive. Yeah. And cloaks it in a weird patriotic freedom, even God, Jesus thing. Yeah. Which is so... Now that's Antichrist. Yeah, absolutely. There, could, there could be nothing more Antichrist. Right. When people talk about Antichrist, they're talking about that which is opposed to the reconciling work of Christ and stockpiling massive amounts of weapons right is opposed to the work of christ in the world amen oh there we go <laughs> oh the evan the old evangelical in me is coming out now um <laughs> and I, I and what i've observed is that people my experience is when people have moments when all of a sudden they see it what they're a part of yeah all of a sudden the f-14 flies over um at the end of the national anthem in an nfl game yeah. And the NFL game is hyper testosteroneized <laughs> in in this weird relationship with the military. Yeah. And everybody gets all misty-eyed. And it's all a giant system built on a myth of redemptive violence. Right. That says we will just have more weapons and we will just crush you and the way we'll make things better and redeem them is through killing more people. Right. You, you just s- take out the people that oppose and well then everybody agrees. And then it'll be very quiet. Um, it'll be very quiet. It'll be a very peaceful quiet. Yeah, Because yeah. there won't be anybody to resist us. Right. So um, talk to me about drones. Mm. Because yeah. drones appear to me to be a way to get one click. They're the same work, just to get a click between you and, and the killing. Yeah, I think that's... And it that's, sort of sanitizes it. Right. I, th- I think it is. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest problems with it. Yeah. And so when I say that... Um, a lot of people, when I say that, they, they sort of balk and say, like, wait, no, it's good because uh, we're not putting our troops in harm's way and they're not having to undergo the massive, massive carnage of war. But I think it's the massive carnage of war that, res- that makes us resist doing it again, right? So I'll never go to war again and I'll never, 
I'll never advocate that we go to war. I'll never support war ever again because I've experienced it. So if we remove people from the experience of experiencing war, right, of being in the war, um, then we're not creating a memory of something that we want to avoid. And I think part of the problem is that we don't continue to pass that memory from generation to generation. So you got like the, the, the greatest generation, right, uh, who uh, went to World War II and notoriously did not talk about their experiences with war. Um, you come home from that war and you buy a house and you start having kids and you go to work at GM or as long General as you're Electric, white, yeah, yeah and as long as everything's you're white. cool, right? As long as you're white, yes. yeah, um, and uh, yeah, and and that's it, and that's the end of it, and then you just continue on these patterns of consumption and uh, to drive the economy so that you can provide for your family, and then you end up with Korea and Vietnam and the Cold War and all of these things that because you didn't talk about it to your sons and your daughters. Uh, they don't have that memory that's been passed to them of just how god-awful war is and how, how war is the opposite of, of what the world is intended to be but is actually hell. Mm. War is, I mean, the, the, the phrase war is hell is true. Like, I can't imagine something more opposed to the god-ordained structure of the world or what God wants the world to be, or however, kingdom of God, however, whatever yeah. tradition we yeah, want to yeah, yeah. phrase that language in, I can't imagine something that's more opposed to that. And so when we, when we fail to, to talk about uh, the carnage of war, what we've experienced in war, uh, and learning from the people that have gone before us about just how bad it is, then we're more apt to repeat it. So when we remove those who would experience war from war, we're then trying to just erase memory. All the killing without the passing on of what it's really like. Right. Oh, got it. Oh, got it. It's the memory. It's a, you wouldn't believe, by the way, how many times over the past decade I've been speaking and a soldier comes up afterwards and says, I'm a soldier. Mm. And I fought, usually it's Afghanistan or Iraq, and I, it's done something to me. I don't yeah. believe it anymore. Yeah. I mean... And they say it sort of secretly. It's like Nicodemus. They come at night. Yeah. And somehow they they say to me, I I don't really have a lot of people I can talk to about this. Mm -hmm. But I fought for my country and and the questions I have, the regrets, the confusion, the bewilderment, the growing conviction that I was a part of something that is deeply opposed to what I want my life to be about. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you peel the curtain back and you, you look behind the veil, you can't unsee these things, mm-hmm. right? They're stuck with you. And so I look around now um, and I see the world in a way that is so vastly different from how most people see it. And I see just little things like the way we grow our food, where we grow our food, where we buy our food, the, the products we consume. I see how those are related to larger economic structures and trade structures uh, throughout the world and how that has caused the overthrow of dictators and violence revolt through the CIA and sort of all kinds of stuff in in Central and Latin America, um, in South America, in uh, in a number of Southeast Asian countries, right? Like these are things that you you start to piece together and once you see behind that curtain, you can't unsee it and some people just keep telling themselves that it's all true. And some people um, start to learn a language that gives that what they've seen meaning. They start to see how those structures mean in a way that is opposed to what they want the world to be. What's an example of a habit for people listening who live in England, Middle America, South Australia, what, and have a nice house and a couple kids and a car and go buy groceries. What's a habit or a pattern that, that many of us are in of consumption that actually has a violent undertow we may not be aware of? Well, the, yeah, I mean, the obvious one right now and the easy one is oil, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the low-hanging fruit that we can just pick and, and throw in the middle of the room and say how much you drive, how you, how you power your home, 
right? So if, are you using renewable energies or are you using fossil fuels that are uh, sourced um, in locations where our country is unfriendly with the country in that location? Um, and how does that put enmity between me and the people in that geographic region? Because I somehow, what's, what's right, below their soil. I want what's underneath you. How mm-hmm. do I get it? Because I don't want to pay $4 for a gallon of gas or $5 or $10 or whatever. So how am I going to get this for less? Right. And so that's the low hanging fruit, the easy one. Right. We, I can say that, you know, Bush invaded Iraq for the oil, but it was probably Cheney. Um, and, uh, and, and that like isn't really going to be new information to anyone. One of the things that I think is really interesting. So uh, right now it's um, October, about to be November. Tomatoes, right? Tomato. The food system is one of the most violent systems in the world. So tomatoes that you eat usually in winter months, most of those tomatoes are going to come from Florida. And uh, the people who work on the tomato farms or in the greenhouses um, in Florida picking tomatoes uh, are very often modern slave labor. They're people who have come to the United States in search of a better existence, oftentimes Haitian and Dominican uh, Dominican people, and they they end up in Florida and um, are looking for a job where somebody has brought them to Florida with the promise that I'll give you a job, you'll just have to repay me the cost to bring you here. Right? These are not new ideas, but they're things that we've sort of hidden because we buy our tomatoes from the grocery store in January and in, and in June, and it's the same thing. But the people living on these tomato farms are living 15 people in a 10 foot square room and uh, and aren't able to leave. And who are they going to call? The police? So eating a tomato right now, well, you're feeding into a system of a system demand that, mm-hmm. um, that allows for this sort of behavior to continue. So the idea, I would say that the pattern of behavior, the habit that we get into is the idea that we can have what we want when we want it. And so I want a tomato right now. I should be able to have a tomato because I can make that happen by going to the grocery store and getting a tomato. And we're so removed from where our food comes from and where our oil comes from and where all of our goods and services come from that we can have them whenever we want and it doesn't matter what it costs anybody else. Uh, and so we're, in past ages, you, if you wanted a tomato, you'd ask, are tomatoes in season? Right. So there was a harmony you had with the soil. Mm-hmm. And then... If it's in season, how do I get that? Is there somebody who grows them? What's a fair price? How do we make sure that everybody has a, a good life in the process? Now, as long as I can go and show up at 3 a.m. at the Ralph's, yeah, and there's fluorescent lighting and tile floors, and there's a good-looking tomato, I'm fine. Yeah. And so there's a whole system behind that right. that is violent yeah. and oppressive. Right. But I get my tomatoes. Well, so what I more, Which is obviously the resurgence of co-ops and... and the number of people who are asking these sorts of questions, where did my food come from? Every time yeah. you ask a question, whether it's food, clothes, where did this come from? Right. You are narrowing the gap. Mm-hmm. You're minimizing the clicks between you and whatever it is. Right. And it's probably going to be more just for everybody. Yes. That's the hope. That's the hope. But the problem is, like, we, we're still working in a system where... I mean, we can we can work within the system to a certain extent, and uh, you know, the whole go local, um, co-ops, those sort of things, right? And I think those are good first steps. But the problem is, the bottom line of all of that is still profit and consumption, right? So instead of saying something like, "How do we live?", we're saying, "How do we live in a way that everybody still has enough money?" Right, So as though living is somehow necessarily tied to money. That is the bottom line of, of our economy, our societal structure. I think that will have to change if we're really going to try and work at peace. Um, now, I am under no illusions that the United States government is somehow just going to say, we're no longer a capitalist country, uh, we're no longer a consumption-based economy, uh, now everybody will just sit around in drum circles, right? I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not that naive. 
But what I do think is that uh, ethics always starts with, with the individual person. It always starts inside of you. Um, and when I say that, I mean, it starts with, like you're saying, the questions. Where did this come from? Why this? Why this? Why this? Is there another way to do this? Is there another place to get this? Is there a better way to do this? It's not that we're going to make, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not that we're going to get everything right. Um, but just a and, little click and, here. Right. A little click little, there. Little, little steps. And, and th this is the reason why I don't like being called uh, a pacifist or um, a non-combatant or any of those things, right? Because I am deeply, deeply violent. Everything I do in my life has some component of violence to it. I drove here for to be here uh, mm -hmm. with you today, um, and I used oil. I could have taken the train and then probably jumped on a bus, but I didn't want to. I would have had to leave my office a little earlier. It would have been inconvenient. I figured I'll yeah. just drive. Um, that was a decision I made that uh, has an economic cost and a, and a social cost um, and a cost to the environment and a cost to future life because of the carbon that I'm polluting into the air, right? All of those things, that's a decision I made that uh, results in the continuation of a violent system. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to just, uh, you know, go crash their car onto the side of whatever freeway in Ohio um, and just leave it there. But I am saying that we need to start looking uh, to ways to become less violent, that we need to look at ways to live better, that we need to start saying, what are better ways to do this rather than, is this the right way? So in relation to business, um, there's this company that I really like based in San Clemente. And I went, uh, their founder, I went with him to Haiti one time. Um, I used to work in Haiti in some orphanages. And right after the earthquake, uh, I took him on a trip there to work around the orphanage, rebuild some things, you know, typical, like, let's go feel good about our stuff's mission work. And, uh, and so we go to Haiti and he's telling me about his company. Turns out like, I just thought he was some surfer dude and he is, but I thought he was just some surfer dude that lived in a van or something. And turns out he's the head of this company that, um, was the first person to import acai berries to the United States. And so I start, and you know, that's this whole huge, like cool, trendy berry, uh, that caught on a while ago and it's faded a bit, but, um, I was telling him like, some of these things like, well, how do you avoid uh, exploiting people where you're importing the berries from? And so he told me this, which a lot of people probably already knew about this, but it was news to me. Um, what's called the triple bottom line. So, right, like right. we're working in this sort of uh, profit based economy, consumption based economy. And so the company is failing if it's not making profit. But there are other ways to determine success. That's just how we do it in our economy because we're a capitalist society. But he placed also people and planet. So people profits planet. If he was failing in any one of those areas, so if people weren't uh, being paid a livable wage enough to afford health insurance, to send their kids to school, all of that sort of stuff in the jungles of, of South America where there were very few schools and they were very expensive and nobody could afford to send their kids there, well, now... Uh, these people are given a job uh, that allows them to sustainably live, right? Planet, he only picked so many berries, right? Like he said, well, those need to stay because the forest needs to continue. This has to be something that we do long term. It can't be like, well, I'm just going to make a couple million this year and, and then we'll out. call it quits yeah. and I'll see what I do next year, right? It just can't work that way if we hope to, to have a future um, as, as a human people, we have to learn how to live in harmony with the land. We have to start doing little things in cities like growing flowers and peppers in our gardens and in pots because otherwise we're just going to lose all kind of connection with uh, where our food comes from and be okay with exploiting people in Florida. Oh, so good. So helpful. So provocative. Anything... Um, I'm so grateful you you came by today. <laughs> Any um, Hauerwas? What was if people want to read more Hauerwas? Oh. What book by Hauerwas? Uh, if you want to read Hauerwas, start with um, Resident Aliens. Resident Aliens, okay. Yeah. And then yeah. Yoder's book. Uh, that's a little thick. Uh, Yoder, I don't want to recommend for some other reasons. Okay. Um, and um, have you read Kurlansky's book on nonviolence? Yeah, good, that's one. A good one. Um, there's a book I forget who wrote it it's called um, uh, 
oh gosh, I'm going to butcher it. Um, the Myth of the Scapegoat. It's written by an Anabaptist guy. It's really dense, um, really heavy theology. Is that Gerard? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Really, um, really good. That one's that Rene, one's Renee Gerard. Gerard. Yes. Yeah. The Myth of the Scapegoat. I think it's Myth it? of the Scapegoat or yeah. the Scapegoat, something like that. So those of you who find all of this nonviolent talk compelling, trust me, there's some extraordinary books out there. Thank you so much. I appreciate you telling some of your story. Of course. I, um, if people, we hear enough of these stories, and I love what you talked about with memory, mm. and you are, your job is to um, share your memory. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, thanks so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. Grace and peace, everybody.